Welcome to episode 275 of the No Proscenium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro headquarters, aka the kitchen table, here in Los Angeles. This week on the show, we've got a banger of an episode. Pete Billington, the writer and director of Wolves in the Walls and one of the co-founders of Fable, is here to talk about Wolves in the Walls, which has made its way over to the Oculus Quest uh, this uh, past month, just right there at the end. Um, if you don't know Wolves in the Walls, it's based on the Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean storybook. Uh, it is an absolutely incredible piece of work. It's been on the festival circuit and on the Oculus Rift for some time, and now it's on the Quest, which is rapidly becoming the biggest virtual reality platform that has ever existed Pretty much full stop. Um, the great thing about Wolves is that it's got all of the, the 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 insight of a bunch of filmmakers and game makers and immersive theater makers who all came together to create these characters and this world and put you inside of it. And um, you're going to hear all about that. You're also going to hear about the work Fable is doing right now in the realm of virtual beings uh, as as they, they take what they've learned on Wolves and accelerate in a brand new direction. And that entire universe of virtual beings is utterly fascinating. And there are all kinds of questions that come up, and we, we get into some of that in this one. Uh, this is really a fantastic episode for those of you who like uh, kind of peeking ahead you want to know what's going on in a couple of years? This is a good one for that. So, all right, let's deal with a little bit of business. First, we're going to do the Patreon, and then we're going to have some announcements that you don't want to miss. So I want to thank our latest backers, Kate Milliker, sorry, and Vance Garrett for, for joining up. Uh, we are in for some chop. One of our sustaining backers uh, has, to, has to bow out for a little while. Uh, this pandemic thing, it's difficult. And uh, the folks who are who really help us out a lot, uh, they're they're feeling it too. So, with that in mind, one of the things we did is we just turned on annual memberships at Patreon. I know some people are often like, I I don't know if I want to be like giving every month. That's fine. If you want to get it all out of the way, if you want to get the bite done, go ahead and use the annual membership. You can pay the two dollar a month all at once. That's twenty four bucks. Um, maybe wait to January. <laughs> taxes for tax purposes but there you go that's a way to to do that and help us out patreon.com slash no proscenium and our sustaining backers as they stand right now are mark balthazar jan budman paul f lonnie hanson ari hurston sam kinkin samuel mystery sydney Guillory, emily gillette Brittany, and elaine thank you all for sticking with us and and those of you who have to go i understand and hopefully People step up and keep us going because this is how we do this. There, there really isn't any other way. Like, there isn't. So, please. All right. All the things we do. Uh, it's not just the podcast. It's the website. And this year, for the first time, we're going to do awards. 
we're going to do awards. I mean, we're not, we're not physically making awards, but you know, we're going to honor people. We're going to honor people for the work that they did. There are going to be awards coming down from the editorial board. There's also going to be audience awards. And you can right now put in your nominations for who should be winning the audience awards for No Persinium for 2020. There will be a link in the show notes. And if you wanted to stop right now and get that done, you can go over to nopersinium.com or you can find the link and, and jump through a couple of hoops. And there you go. And putting your nominations and voting will happen after that. You have until 10 a.m. Pacific time on the 9th. So five more days as I'm recording this to get those nominations in because voting starts the very next day and the awards are coming out on the 18th. That's right. Going to move fast. So if you haven't heard, now you have. Get it done. Doesn't take much time. Something else, another date to stick in your brain and in your calendar. Uh, Leia, the League of Experiential and Immersive Artists that I am involved in, one of the founding members of, uh, that they, we, they, we, we and they are having <laughs> office hours uh, on the Leia Discord. Not not the NoPro Discord, but the Leia Discord, which is open to all. Uh, and there's no there's no paywall for that one. Uh, Leia office hours are happening on December 15th. It is an end of the year gathering. It's also a look forward at 2021 and the beginning of our membership drive, how that's going to work because the long gestating bylaws for the league, which is a prerequisite for us to take on actual members are going to be the draft bylaws, which still need a little bit of work just to come compliant with California law. Uh, let's not go there a little bit of work. Uh, but what we have right now, so everyone knows what they're getting into, those are dropping next week. And on December 15th, you'll be able to talk to us about that, ask us questions, uh, and engage in real time, and uh, find out like what it is we've been doing all this time. So December 15th, 7 p.m. Pacific time in the Leia Discord. Find links to the Leia blog that has more details again in the show notes right here on the page. Um, that's all the news. Well, not all the news. There's plenty of stuff going on and we'll, we'll get that to you in all the other forms we have. Um, that's all the information for right now. Now sit back, get ready to jump in because here we go with Pete Billington in, in just a fantastic interview. I just got a chance to finish it. Oh, we've started now. Um, I just got a chance to finish it last night. I, I, had, I had gotten to see the first chapter when I was like at a festival in, in China, of all things. Like there was all these, there was all these other things I could have looked at, but like I was like, oh, it's here. And so like I made a beeline for Rolls in the Walls. Uh, and, and now that it's been ported over to Quest, Ironically, on the day when I finally got a PC that would have been able to run it, um, I I ran it and I was crying at the end. Like, I'm so glad you got a chance to see it. Um, yeah, it was kind of hard to get your hands on for a long time, and um, yeah, I'm super stoked that you got to see it. It's uh, it was definitely a labor of love. I'm just excited that like more and more people now that this 
no, the quest two is like doing gangbuster sales. Like there's, we'll, we'll roll back into this and, and, and get into like, you know, the, the, how it came about. But I think the thing that I was most kind of struck by was that the, the project feels like uh, an, an art form that has like been fully fleshed out and has arrived like in, in how it exists right now. And yet I know like the market's sort of going off in like a very gamey direction and like there's all these things happening, but there's, there's so much thought that's been put into how you're telling a story and, and how it's interactive. I wonder if we can maybe begin at the beginning and, you know, when the idea to adapt this Neil Gaiman story and adapted in a style that retained a lot of well, the vibe of Dave McKean's art uh, came about. Sure. Yeah. It is, uh, you know, it's back to 2015. Um, there was a small studio inside of Oculus that was charged with, you know, now that we have this beautiful device um, and we have these new words called immersion and presence, which aren't really new words, but uh, how do we tell, you know, a Pixar-like animated story? Um, and the first foray into that was uh, this little project called Lost, and it was quite passive. You, you know, were looking at this uh, big robotic hand, and then sort of in an iron giant homage, you could see uh, this big robot, and you'd looked up, and you got a sense of, like, scale, and that was really exciting. It, it's... It's hard to remember the context now, but every time we would experience something like, oh, you actually get a sense of scale. That was a very powerful moment in the evolution of VR storytelling. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is the third or fourth or fifth wave of VR, however you want to say it. So I'm not claiming these are like world first, but they were certainly revelations and really exciting moments to us. And then the second uh, thing that happened was Henry, and that was much more traditional style animated storytelling. Um, a little piece that the whole studio worked on was directed by Ramiro Lopez Dow. And we talk about this over and over again, but there was this moment in Henry where this little hedgehog who's having a birthday party all by himself um, because he's too spiky and no one wants to hug him, um, looks over and makes eye contact with the audience. And the reason that was significant is because we could positionally understand where you were in 3D space so it really felt like the character was making eye contact. And, you know, actors and actresses and even animated characters are sort of trained not to look directly into the lens. You know, you look close lens left or kind of over the shoulder. Here, the character was looking at you and making that moment of eye contact. And it wasn't even really appropriate for the narrative because he was supposed to be alone um, and you were observing this moment. But that character connection kind of all gave us the chills. So I'd say that was the moment of inspiration from a from a sort of new form of storytelling, digital storytelling. And then a couple things also happened. We had um, these new touch controllers, which were prototypes at the time. And I remember I got one of the first ones. It didn't look like the current iteration. It was kind of wires hanging out of it. And we had to change batteries every 15 minutes. And Inigo um, had the other one. And he was writing this illustration software in VR called Quill, which then ultimately would be used to create Dear Angelica, which was the story that came after Henry. 
And so we were sharing these controllers back and forth. And I was sort of given the, the question, what are you going to do with your hands in a story? Mm. Like that has like this implicit sort of, you know, there's, there's a, a lot to solve there and it seems so simple, but now that you can actually make a choice of what to pick up, what to interact with, um, it, it meant that implicitly then the narrative would have to react to that and the character would have to observe and then react to that. And so that just that simple piece of technology, which was the hand controller and having your hands in VR kind of put us on this path. So that coupled with the fact that um, we were searching for something more character centric, we love the idea of spending time with Henry and we wanted to do that on a much larger scale. We wanted to potentially explore episodic content because we were also trying to figure out the economics of all of this right. and how you would sell content. All of those things came together say, okay, what's the perfect sort of format to tell a story in this way? And um, we were all huge fans of Neil Gaiman. And I think it was Sashka who had just identified this beautiful story by Neil and Dave um, about this little girl, Lucy, and the fact that she's convinced there are wolves living in the walls of her house. And the fact that houses um, have this potential to be a character as well. And I think the idea of spatialized audio with VR and the dark corners um, all made it sort of the perfect fit to explore. And so that's where, that's where it all came from, uh, the sort of confluence of those ideas. Solving those problems was a much bigger problem, <laughs> big, big task. What was the thing that gave you the most friction? Um, so I, I think we encountered a, a lot of friction, um, not immediately, but about six months in, and it was friction by design. It was actually a collision by design. So we, we approached the, the problem and say, okay, well, let's, let's go in and, uh, and sorry, I gotta mute this. Oh, it's okay. Um, let's uh, collide things that we know. So we'll take all these folks from animated features, Pixar and DreamWorks, who really know about storytelling and they know about animation and bringing a character to life. And obviously we have to tell these stories in a real-time way, in a real-time engine, which means that we need to, to look at games and, um, and especially games that have AI characters. Uh, and draw from that as well. And so we put those two groups of people in a room together and let magic happen. And that was wonderful for about six months well, as we were trying to figure out um, all the new ways of working. And ultimately, we just ended up having a stalemate because the, mm -hmm. film, the film folks were completely convinced they knew how to do storytelling and the game people were completely convinced they had a really good prototype blueprint mentality of how to make things interesting and fun and interactive. Um, but we really didn't know how to work together and we really didn't know what we were solving for. And that's when we started looking towards immersive theater um, and the live action uh, performance as our sort of North Star. Um, but that was the first collision point. And it probably revealed itself in um, one of our pillars. So we had these like five or six pillars that were the foundations of the project. And sort of the third one was a really significant one when it really looked at how we use our hands. 
but it was centered around objects and how objects have secret lives. I loved, mm. I loved going into sleep no more and opening the drawer and reading the letter and trying to find all this hidden meaning in the letter. And like, how does that relate to the narrative? And maybe the clues were pretty clear at the time that, you know, there was this other group of people that were running up and down the staircases, chasing the narrative and wanted to understand that through line. And it was kind of all lost on me at, uh, the first time I went because I was so obsessed with the artifacts. And I thought, because we had our hands in, in this experience and we we're going to be able to interact with odd audience uh, or sorry, we're going to interact with objects that we could eliminate backstory and exposition, this sort of weakness in most scripts by telling all of that through object interaction. So you would pick up an object, you would look at all of its characteristics, all of the scratches and dents, and you would pick up on backstory sort of subconsciously through that powerful object interaction. I love the idea. I think it's still a really interesting idea. The problem was when we pursued it in a significant way, it completely broke narrative in the same way that I think it kind of does in Sleep No More. It's not... It's, it's texture, it's, it creates illusion and depth to the experience. But if you're not at some point chasing the narrative, you're gonna be, you're just, you're gonna miss big chunks of that story. And well, is can, that kind of a function of like losing a sense of urgency? Um, Cause I know like in, like let's say I'm playing a game, which is often the case. Um, like I'm recently started playing Control again which is like, you know, absolutely gorgeous game. And it's got this very X-Files vibe and there are just pieces of paper everywhere to pick up. And you, they built this super elaborate mythology that you can read, uh, but it is at complete odds with the character's needs and wants. And, and that dissonance between what the drama of the story is trying to, to keep you in a certain emotional moment versus the richness of the world which and, and sometimes it might be that's more fun um but i feel like particularly like in, in game world like that's never been fully resolved like like no one's no one's no one's hit it right down the center of the plate yet. it's uh you're a hundred percent right i mean that's what i experienced too and especially when it's this one-on-one -on -one mentality where you're you're sharing an intimate moment with a character and they might be telling you something that's really important to you or to them as well and you have this fascinating object in front of you and remember vr is still pretty much a novelty so if i give you a flashlight in vr you're going to be obsessed with just turning it on and off and the fact <laughs> that it works which is kind of ridiculous in, in in our world but in vr it's still this superpower that you really haven't had before in an interactive format so we had to be really careful. And I, I think that was the moment of like, just absolute, like we just stalled because we thought, oh, maybe that's not what this is about. Um, and it is about connection to character. That, that's what we ultimately figured out is like every interaction that you do in Wolves in the Walls is at the service of connecting you to Lucy. It's either... Um, as something as simple as escorting her with your eyes, we might put an object in your field of view that you have to physically move your body in order to be able to see her or mm. uh, just a basic offering of an object, but not in a way like a game would where there's this contract sort of implicit in the offer where the character's looking at the object and they're looking at you and there's all this unspoken consequence to whether you take it or not. 
like a branched narrative there. It's more like the way a friend would hand you something as they're digging in, you know, a drawer, they just sort of backhand this object to you. You're much, much more likely to, to grab that object because you're being treated in a, in a, in a way that's intimate, but also connective. Um, so all of our choices about interaction were always either at the service of connecting you to Lucy, helping Lucy, or giving you some context that would help you down the line understand her emotional state. Um, yeah, there's something there's something really powerful about the casualness of the physicality, like in what you're describing. Like you know, like a friend doesn't treat handing you something like with great import unless they're deliberately being melodramatic and they want to draw attention to the moment and make everyone feel awkward. Um, for good or ill, but like a friend, like you said, just like he holds it behind the back, doesn't hold on to for a second, you know. And and the first time someone does that with you is itself kind of very powerful because you're you're being trusted, like you know you're you you're being trusted to fall into the role that's that's expected of you. And it's not a there's not a lot of pressure to it, but there's there's a warmth. Completely, and, and there's there's definitely a warmth in in this relationship y'all have created between the the participant and and Lucy, and it's it's almost. I mean, it's it's not even almost. It is kind of trippy, um, how much depth there is to it. Even though, like, it's not it's. You know, this isn't like a, a multi-hours long experience, although I'm very thankful that there's, a, there's an intermission and it's like a chance to take a break. Um, but there's, in any given moment, there's there's a lot of weight. That's what made us the most suspicious about where we went after wolves, which is kind of back to the beginning with Lucy and how people are are willing to bond with her so quickly. Um, mm. and go along for the ride and do the kinds of things. You know, it's not unusual for someone to start speaking to her, even though within the VR context, she can't hear. Um, right. It's, it, it, is, it, it is quite often, especially, you know, in these moments of like heavy emotional connection that people just start naturally speaking to her. So, you know, now we're able to understand what people are saying and, um, we can see people's physicality. We can see uh, their body language and we can pick up on that. We're adding memory components outside of the VR experience, just experimenting with these new ways of connection um, to, to sort of build that relationship, to build that int intimacy in even uh, more significant ways. I want to, I want to drill down into where you guys are going with Lucy and, and with virtual beings as a whole in a second. But also we, we we put a hat on uh, the fact that like immersive theater got involved and you turned to that discipline and you and you didn't just turn to like any company you turned to you know, my favorite company Third Rail Projects and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about bringing in an immersive theater company to help you find some of the, the way the story moves forward and 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 now you go from having the games folks and the film folks and now it's the game folks the film folks and the theater folks and i'm really curious how they all work together 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'm forever in debt to Zach and Janine and the entire cast of Third Rail. I feel like it was life-changing for me. It really changed the way I think about creativity and, and entertainment and audience interaction. Um, they had a profound impact on the project, so I will, I will happily talk about that for, <laughs> for as long as I can. But um, I think there was this sort of symbiosis that happened um, almost instantaneously. So there was this tradition at Story Studio of going to, to sleep no more for everyone that joined. And that was kind of the, you have to experience immersive theater to understand VR. Um, that was a very early thing. There all those masks uh, that you get at Sleep No More were hanging from the rafters in the first studio that we had. And so that was sort of a rite of passage. And then at the same time, like if you were lucky, you also got to sort of almost back to back see uh, Then She Fell by Third Rail. And I walked out of Then She Fell and I said to Jess, you know, this, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. It was literally the best thing that I'd ever seen in my life. For two hours, I felt like I had emotionally connected to material in ways that I didn't know was possible. And it was because of the intimacy. Um, but this, it was something that inherently could not scale. You just couldn't do enough performances of that at that level of quality um, in the real world. Uh, and and maintain it. I don't know how you could do that. And so VR for us was the way to do that as well as we could with with the resources that we had. And so walking out of that, I remember I wrote, you know, 10, 12 pages of notes on a legal pad the, the, the same night. You know, I couldn't sleep and I just, I, I literally just documented my entire experience as, as well as I could. And then I, you know, talking to Jess like about what her experience was and the fact that they were different but we yeah. walked away with similar emotional connections and knowing that at certain points we were seeing the same thing, but from different perspectives, like all of that was mind blowing and so oh, yeah. well choreographed. And I didn't have the language at the time to describe it, but ultimately I understand that it's a dance now and it's choreographed like a dance. Um, and the performers are dancers. So I think we reached out to them almost immediately and just said, look, we're, it was right when we were stalling out in that sort of secret live of object idea and about interaction. And so it was the perfect time to inject this new way of looking at, um, at how to tell a story and how to make the audience part of the story. And like I said, there was symbiosis because they were fascinated with what we were doing because it, you know, they have certain limitations. They have to build physical sets they have to manage humans through, you know, small corridors. They have legal ramifications about how many people and fire code and all of these things that, um, you know, immersive storytellers have to deal with on a regular basis. And so we were living in this fantasy world where everything was possible to some extent. And so I think it was cool that we could see the limitations of each other's mediums and offer suggestions from our own perspectives about how you know, we could change the way that we thought about it. And I think Zach in particular was like, you're being too literal. Like you can make anything you want in VR. Why wouldn't you? So <laughs> that's, that's why, you know, we really delved into this idea of, you know, imaginary friend. And once you're imaginary friend, then really you're in the imagination of the character, which means you don't have to play by the rules anymore. 
And so the handcuffs were off at that point. We could really tell the story emotionally however we wanted. And I think the biggest single revelation that came from that was this idea of emotional point of view. And it didn't really come directly um, from one source, but it was sort of the combination of the art direction and the production design and this immersive theater component and the fact that we could do whatever we wanted. So we just had this principle that was, we see the world the way that Lucy feels the world. Mm. Because you're her imaginary friend, you are her pure emotional state. And she might have a, you know, a filter on that. You know, she might be more guarded in which you're seeing a much more realistic manifestation of the world. Or she might be completely in her subconscious, in which case you're seeing, you know, a, a, a therapy drawing, which is what sequence 700, you know, the, the climax of, of act one or act two is, is manifested. You're just completely in her psyche. And the fact that VR allows you to do that, and it would be so difficult to do that um, in the real world. So I think we just, in some ways even hard to do it in a traditional film. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because you could you could have a you, I mean you can do dream sequences you can do heightened, but when you're anchored to the character, and you're you're in a very clear relationship to to a, to a protagonist, it it I, I I think probably a lot of people find themselves being protective of her, um, and and it's clear there's times her physicality like kind of requires it of you. Yep. And that that dynamic is so I mean you may feel attached to a character in a TV show or a or a movie, but it's one thing to feel attached. It's another thing to like, no, I'm gonna put my body between this character and the thing that's threatening me. That's funny. That's a that was an explicit goal that I would say to the team is if we can get them in Act Three to stand between a wolf and Lucy, sub like without a prompt, without a real prompt, then we have figured it out because that's exact. That was exactly the goal to be protective of this person that you've just met. You know, like you said, we don't spend that much time with her, and it's pretty remarkable how quickly people are willing to protect her or feel um, that she is meaningful to them. Um, and again, that's another principle that we learned from Third Rail is you have to earn this and you have to do a lot of things up front to be able to earn that participation because mm-hmm. we're not inherently trained. Most of us aren't inherently trained to participate in the fiction, you know, unless you played right. D&D as a kid or you're an actor or an actress or uh, someone who's really into theater. You know, we, we like to passively consume. And so it's remarkable to me to see, you know, an 80 year old man get down on the ground with Lucy and, and be next to the little chalk drawing of her. And um, it's, it's just really cool to see people connect to her like that. So this goal of, of having people connect to Lucy does follow through into the work you guys are doing now on, on Lucy as a virtual being. So for those who maybe aren't familiar, uh, could you kind of give like the, 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 the overflight? Yeah. For what you're doing? Cause right now people can talk to her. <laughs> like it's one of the things that's going on. Yeah. I think 
I think going to the different festivals, you know, being at Sundance and just seeing people interact with her and then being able to go to Tribeca and, and do that as well. Like we started to see people committing to her in ways that was a little unexpected. And like you said, like people are crying coming out of this experience because it evokes and intentionally. So it evokes, we're trying as hard as we can to evoke your sense of what it was like to be eight years old, your family. Mm. You know, these characters, with the exception of Lucy, none of them have names because I'd much rather it be your sister, your mother, your father, and all of the stuff that comes with that, you know, because we have these expectations of how families behave and we can see ourselves in the, in the stories we create. Um, so there's a ton of ourselves, the creators, in, this, in the piece. There's Neil. You know, Lucy is Neil's daughter. Um, and that was the story origin originated from, from a, a story she told her dad. So there's just this, like all of this stuff packed into this little character, um, for such a short experience, but we were seeing people connect to her and, and then putting wolves aside, I'm looking at all the trends, like what I like and what I'm watching society gravitate towards, which is this combination of long form serial content. Like we love episodic content. We're eating it up. We binge it. We can't get enough. We feel betrayed, you know, at the end of season one when they cut off the head of who we think the main character is. And then yet it goes for eight more seasons and we just keep consuming these characters, not necessarily stories. We're bonding with characters over longer and longer amounts of time, which means we have a much better understanding of who these characters are. And then when they do something that we don't think is in alignment with who they are, we're shocked, or there's more drama. And so all of that was happening. And then the other side of that is the intimacy that's coming with better and better immersive content, whether that's games, or certainly an immersive theater, where you have these custom catered experiences that feel like they can only happen for you. It's kind of like when a really good magician does like this intimate card trick, that can only happen for you. And it feels so special. So how do we tap into that and how do we start creating content for that format, both so that it can sustain over longer and longer periods of time? And if you were to really push that idea, what would it be like to have a relationship with a character over 10 years, over 20 years? Right now, if you walk into an 88-minute movie and in Act 3 that character dies, there's an impact, but by the time the credits are rolling, you've pretty much process that loss. If you've spent 20 years with a character and that character dies, you will mourn that character. It will have a mm -hmm. profound impact on your life. So all of that sort of started becoming really interesting to me about how do I tell a story that could last a much longer time that you are a part of that had a sense of memory and context so that we start stop talking to that character and metaphor and we start recounting experiences to compare them to the existing experience. Um, so a component of memory. And just like with VR, where all of these new superpowers basically fell in my lap um, in terms of being present and having spatialized audio and having emotional POV and interaction as a connection to character. So all of that stuff we learned from VR and immersive theater, now I've got really sophisticated AI which gives me the one thing that I didn't have when we were making Wolves, which is an actress who can improvise. And that's what immersive theater had. 
you know, the immersive theater, you had this human brain that had the ability to react to the sort of non-golden path, wacky things that can happen when you're doing a live performance. And with technology like GPT-3, machine vision, we have now the potential to improvise, um, which is kind of mind-blowing, really. Like, we're still trying to wrap our heads around how do you harness this stuff um, for good? And I, it's, yeah, that's, it's, that's, a, that's a small part. Of it. <laughs> you know, the, like, like almost everywhere I speak, I get the sort of the dystopian question um, because AI is scary. But to me, it's like sort of intrinsically human. You know, these, mm. these technologies are trained on thousands and thousands and thousands of human conversations, maybe millions of human conversations. So they're intrinsically human. They do very human things. Um, they feel human. And that's not really that scary to me because they're more silly than they are scary, um, which is actually weirdly the theme of wolves when you face things head on. You know, they're not they're not as scary. But I think because we work with them every day and we're realizing that they're just tools um, and we weave them together with pure traditional creativity and storytelling and we don't always let the AI just go on a tangent, we kind of harness it and corral it. Um, it's quite remarkable, though, when you when all of a sudden your character has the um, the ability to riff, it can respond. I had this sort of amazing experience with GPT three, which is a, a conversational AI, the other day. I gave it very few words of context. Um, in fact, this is an exercise that um, one of our artists. Dave was working on, he said, he gave it the context of, okay, the AI is Albus Dumbledore. He's the professor at Hogwarts and the audience member is a person who works in a particular field. And Dumbledore is very interested in finding out what this audience member does for a living. So they exchange pleasantries and then Albus says, well, what do you do? And Dave being Dave, who's working on Lucy, says, well, I pretend to be a character that I'm not every day. And uh, Albus Dumbledore, who is the AI, says, oh, you mean like polyjuice potion? Now, the fact that the AI was wise enough to sort of figure out the context of Albus Dumbledore and improvise that line based on all of the text that JK Rowling wrote um, is quite stunning. Yeah. I feel like the, it's almost like dealing with an AI actor would almost be almost like the reverse, not the, quite the reverse, but there's, there's no, there's potentially no limits on what the AI knows. And so defining the character means turning off, big parts of, and, and just getting to focus, you know, like getting the AI to focus on the identity it's supposed to be presenting, as opposed to going off an extended riff about like, you know, I don't know, Meisner technique or something, which which an unbounded AI could have done, just been like, oh, let me go try and find the perfect answer. Like this is what, but, but by binding it to a particular set of lore, and saying this is the fence, you're, you know, that's that's fascinating. To that's yeah, that's exactly right. That is the hardest part right now. But to me, it feels 
100% like when visual effects started coming in, digital visual effects came into to entertainment, we had sort of these really complicated mathematical algorithms. And that was your, those were your dials and knobs that you could turn as an artist. And so you either had to be a really accomplished mathematician, or you had this sort of lost in translation moment between the artist and the mathematician, the computer programmer to achieve a result. And now 30 years later, we have the most remarkable artistic tools. You know, we have stylus and we have these beautiful gestural ways to create art inside the computer. And so the tool sets will come as long as the artists embrace the technology um, and can find meaning in it. And I think that's, that's kind of how I look at it. It's like we're, we're working in that sort of mathematics place right now where we don't have a lot of control. And so we have to limit how much we let the AI influence the story. But ultimately, once those controls get really good, the artist will then have this unbelievable toolbox to tell stories. And that's, that's something I'm interested about in terms of the, the long-term vision direction here. Because like, I think when people hear about AI, like the first cynical thing to think of, and I think this all the time, um, is, oh, goody, you know, Disney's going to be able to just cut writers and directors out of the process and just, you know, go to, you know, Mickey four and say, I need five more sequels to uh, monsters Inc. And it'll be like right away, you know, Igerbot and boom, boom, boom. Here are five more sequels that, that were, there was no, no human was involved in the creation of it, just market forces. Um, and it sounds like, well, it sounds like big. And then there's the other path where this is kind of a force multiplier for teams and individual artists. And maybe it's a little closer to like George Lucas's dream of, I want to put a helmet on, dream of Star Wars and let everyone see it. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to, to talk about there, but um, <laughs> Just a it's, little, yeah. it's not, I mean, it's not how technology works. Look at what we have now. Like look at YouTube, just look at it. Like, the, abi- <laughs> the, abi- the, the ability to tell a story has been democratized. Like, yes, yeah. there's like lots of crap out there, but there's some beautiful stuff. And the fact that your phone has a camera, you have editorial t- tools at your disposal, you have high quality audio, uh, you can add visual effects quite easily. Now you're empowered as a storyteller. That, that was 10 people, 15 people to get even remotely close to that level of quality if you're willing to spend the time to learn even the simple tools, none of that stuff was, you know, accessible when I started. It wasn't, you know, the idea of being an indie filmmaker was barely a concept um, from a digital perspective. And now you have these tool sets. And so when I talk about, you know, the writer losing access or being overrun by, you know, the corporate overlords, I don't think that's the result. Sure, someone's going to try to do that. But think of it more as the writer than having the ability to be the director. It's like everyone kind of levels up. I talk about this with the animators as well. You know, I spent a lot of time working in visual effects and I'm a terrible animator, but I know the process and the average animator spends most of their time looking at a curve on a screen with little dots on it and pushing those 
little dots either up or down to change the frequency by which that curve moves. And that's ultimately what's making the character come alive when you see the final frame. If the animator levels up and the interface, instead of moving points on a curve, is filtered through an AI that says, can you give me a little bit more emphasis on that last little phoneme and speed it up by 10% and then punch this line for me? That's, that's the job of the animator. They are empowered because the AI is the one adjusting the curves and the points on the curve. We'll get to that, right? The tools haven't been built yet, but that's what the promise of the technology is. So everyone has to look at how it's going to empower them as opposed to where it's going to take their jobs away. But it's the same story. It was when motion capture came into animation, we had this conversation. If you go back 150 years when photography you know, came out and people started saying, well, no one's ever going to travel anymore because you can just take a photo and distribute it. You know, the same fear and dystopian future always like sort of is the predecessor to the tools. Once the tools get built, people kind of chill out and they're like, oh yeah, now I can do a lot more. I can tell a much, much more interesting story. And so that's where my focus is. It's like, oh, I can tell a 20 year story now and the character can know who you are and remember everything that you've done together and give you a gift and you can give it back to them. And it will all be significant because you have context for why they might love that particular thing. And then what does that mean for the next beat of the story? huge potential in storytelling are you thinking of these characters as being having lives outside of their relationship to any you know individual or are you thinking it's, it's going to be more like yes yeah you know a, there's 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 your batman or there's your grogu uh and then there's there's another one that like they sort of have their they have a, maybe they have a meta story and gets dropped in there's an update but like but like the, the the intricate details are about you know yeah so both yeah both okay. awesome yeah. right so yeah. uh, I have a version of Noah mm-hmm. and oh god <laughs> and my version is different than everyone else's this is like a human truth you know we've interacted right. a few times you know sometimes over email sometimes in person if we're lucky you know I've had the the fortune of being at your event, you know, another life-changing moment. So I have like this deep nostalgia for that and the context by which how hard it is to put something like that together. So I have this understanding of who you are, but it's, it's nothing like someone that you have a daily interaction with. But I also observe you on Facebook, on social media, on your podcast. So I have this other sense of your ongoing life. And essentially that's what we're creating. So we have this idea of a public persona for a character, which is passively consumed, where you have context, where you might understand that they're going to events, they're doing certain things, they're sharing things that they're proud of. And then we have these moments where we connect and they might be less frequent, they might be more intimate, they might be in the context of going on an adventure together or solving a problem or even just passively watching a piece of content together. And those those activities mark the nature of our relationship. So if we think about a casual relationship of as an acquaintance, which is probably what we are, we're acquaintances, yeah. we, we've never watched a show together. Watching a show together is a marker of a friendship. 
it's very rare that you would invite someone over to your house without progressing that relationship to watching something together and then having a discussion about it later and what you thought was interesting or meaningful and how it connected to you. So we're observing what those markers are and we're progressing the relationships with these characters according to how that works in our culture, such that over time we bond from acquaintance to friend to potentially confidant where we're sharing you know, more intimate details with each other to help each other, to help each other grow, to learn together, to have good experiences together, to go on adventures together, and then to form those memories. Because with your friends, you most of the time are talking about the things that you've done in the past together as you're experiencing new things. So all of that forms a rhythm and a narrative that becomes an ongoing story. And then when you layer on top of that a character's sort of passive story, I think of it um, as a fractal. So as you descend into the fractal, it just gets more and more dense, but it repeats, it echoes, and it, the top layer has influence over the, the sub layers. Another way to think of it is we like to, to use the, the phrase psyche as a dungeon from a gaming perspective. So the more that you unlock these levels of the dungeon, the more you start to understand the depths of this narrative and also the character and hopefully also yourself. Because it gets to the point of why do we tell stories? Why do we like characters? What, yeah. what, what is the purpose of all of this? It's kind of to understand who you are. Who you are and your place in the world yeah. and how you relate to other people. And how you react. Are you a, what would you do in the protagonist's shoes? You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, are you guys thinking about and look? This is we're in we're in we're in pure futurist territory here, but I love it. I'm thinking right now about you know a lot of what you're talking about is 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 you know the the intimate relationship between the the character and a, a person, and and I'm wondering if there's a, there's an idea of like a, a two way street if this is a unidirectional or a bi directional relationship because you know, I think of I think of the way fandom is right now, and how fandom tries to shape story worlds through various means. Sometimes by writing fan fiction, and thus they have full control. Sometimes by by uh, making a lot of noise on the on the internet, or like directly appealing to companies, or you know, in sort of a, a by the most powerful way, like how much merch they buy of a particular character. It's like, oh, I guess we're just going to focus on this one now. Um, but but all of this is both in individuals and, and collective sense, like a way of, of shaping these the narratives that are that are longitudinal, sort of the the grand franchises that we know. I hate to say franchise, but you know, um, will will part of the formula be um, you know, sort of individuals' interactions feeding back into, you know, who Lucy becomes over that period of time? Like, could someone feel like they are empowered to shape her as much as she maybe shapes them? And like her in the, like the public figure. I'm a hundred percent convinced that this has to be reciprocal. Um, mm. it, it's essential. Um, in order to, to have it have meaning, it needs to feel bi-directional. Um, and I've, I think we've proven that already. Like we've, we've got good experience um, and we're, 
you said people are talking to Lucy now and I'm observing when people talk to her and the cadence of that and when Lucy might be talking too much and when it's time for the, the audience member to talk more um, and how, how do you encourage that and how do you understand what they need. So I, I'm 100% convinced that it has to be reciprocal. Um, and then what of that gets shared publicly, that is something that is kind of next up to explore. Obviously, we have all these concerns around privacy as a society, and we're seeing this revolution of sort of like we can't help ourselves. We want to share as much of ourselves as possible with corporations and with other people. But then we're very frustrated when we do that because we don't really understand the implications of it and how it's being used. So I think there's some tech coming out that's going to help help with that because so many people are concerned about it. But from my perspective as a storyteller, I'm really only interested in in you bonding with the character. So I don't I don't want to know really what you're sharing with Lucy as long as you're getting value out of that relationship and that goes for all the other characters that we're developing. Um, but I think there is something magical about you know, if you had a, a relationship with someone and you gave them, you made them a gift, like something really specific, like, and was special. And then they went on Instagram and they posted the gift that you gave them in a very generic way. Like my friend gave me this thing. Isn't it amazing? You would get the sense of like pride and love out of that, that the person that you gave this gift to valued it enough to share it with the world. It's kind of a rough metaphor, but there's something important to that that I want to explore. Um, and I had, yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking like almost in terms of like, you know, the values of the character, you know, growing or altering or maturing over mm-hmm. time based off the, the interactions it has with people. Yep. Like, you know, Lucy finds herself, you know, playing a certain role for people in her private encounters and so then sort of grows into being that person publicly, you know, totally. like, like, like the way a person would, you know, like yep. I find myself doing this all the time. Oh, I guess I'm a this now, you know? And I think, um, yeah, I think essential to that is that the character isn't, um, you know, where Lucy started, which was, um, she was a response to companion characters and games. So like, if you look like Elizabeth and Bioshock, which was, yeah kind of remarkable when that was developed like what elizabeth's capabilities were so we took a lot of inspiration from characters like elizabeth but we always felt like any character like that was completely subservient to the player so in a game context the the character uh, is looking for ammunition or needs to solve a puzzle and that companion character is just patiently waiting or goes off and and harvest some little thing that they need and then gives it to them. But when they're waiting for that next gated interaction to happen, they're just sort of in this idle loop. And we, we, we were allergic to that concept. And I think that's sort of fundamental now to how we think we don't Lucy or any other character that we develop will never be idle. They'll always have this hierarchy of needs, you know, whether that's a passion or a goal or a belief system that will have impulse and will, create a trajectory for them and you can have influence depending on whether you're that acquaintance or friend or if you're a confidant you might have quite a bit of sway but it probably won't be ever enough to knock them completely off that trajectory it might alter it in some way 
and I think in terms of magnetism, it, it, it might course correct over a time. So I think it's really important to have those two things working in tandem, because if you were able to knock the character completely off axis and change them, it wouldn't feel very good, um, yeah. especially with the levels of intimacy and bonding that we're, we're trying to create. And it also wouldn't, it would feel, um, I think it would feel a little bit too fatalistic as well. Um, and it also tends to paralyze the audience when they feel like they have too much impact. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so we definitely like to keep the characters on a particular trajectory, but then building on that, I don't think that one character is sufficient to explore this idea. I think it's a matrix of characters and it's somehow tied to like sort of Jungian archetypal structure that if I introduce you to a group of characters, you may gravitate towards one or another. You may find the protagonist in this character. I may find it over here. We may completely disagree on who the antagonist is. Yeah. So it's really important as we move forward to sort of create a landscape of characters that we can attach to. Um, and I think it's also sort of essential that the audience gets cast in a role within that matrix. Um, is that sort of storytelling structure is pretty well understood. And so you can design whole narratives around what role the audience might be playing in any particular structure. It's sort of funny you're talking about this with regard to the work you're doing with the virtual beings, because I keep on thinking about this stuff with regard to some of the immersive theater experiences or kind of immersive theater experiences, experiments right now as well, because uh, everything's online, but these sort of narrative you know, experiences that immersive theater folks are creating. And when when things are working, it's because there's a relationship matrix. There's there's something in between the characters in the world, or there's something in between the characters and an us as the audience. And that's the fabric of the story is those are those relationships, uh, not just exposition or plot like those those things are there just to make the the melodrama and the soap opera uh have have something to do but at the end of the day you know whether it's entertainment or it's it's something more active i feel like we're in it for the relationships we form and whether it's to an individual a flesh and blood individual to a character to to a story it's always about how it makes you feel and how it changes you and, and how maybe you change it um i really i think i really believe that i think yeah. you know the more i experiment with these structures the more repetition you see um and you just see these patterns and to now have the ability to explore them in much deeper ways, it, it's the pattern gets revealed. Like going back to that fractal idea, you just see it sort of echoing down. It's like, oh yeah, if you just dive down, it's just the same. It's more and more intense and more focused, but it's all the same. And so tapping into those archetypes that, you know, have been established for hundreds of years, um, thousands of years, and really un unlocking them because you have the ability to get into really nuanced um, parts of storytelling. It's really exciting. Um, and then just being able to improvise, like that's the other component. Um, 
been talking a lot with this uh, gentleman by the name of Guy Gadney, and he has this analogy or sort of historical perspective, which is just totally resonated with me, which is prior to the printing press, in the oral tradition, all stories were adaptive. You know, you would go mm. into the local village and you would sit around the fire, you would be in the amphitheater and you would see your audience and you would be reacting to their, you know, emotional state. So you had the ability to improvise in that way, but you would also work in this local politic, you know, the story from, you know, that was contextually important to them. And then, and then as soon as we started publishing stories, they get locked in their medium, they get trapped in carbonite. And now we're melting that and we can react, we can adapt. And that adaptability is really powerful because all of a sudden we have context. Um, I always yeah. talk about, when people talk about interactive narrative, and particularly people sort of poo-poo it compared to the written word. I just you know, point to, you know, the first stories we tend to have are like the stories our parents tell us. And that's a form of interactive storytelling. You know? But what happens next? Well, but but the purple man, like he's he's a good guy, right? And then it's like, uh, yeah, sure, uh, and and that adaption happens, uh, and so there's almost a way in which the tools we have now let us strip away some of the the, the cruft or the rules and get ourselves back to the the very heart of it, which is the relationship between the the between the people who are making the story up together. I yeah, it's so cool. It's so cool. And it might be even more intrinsic than that. You know, there's this, we have to study memory a lot to try and replicate it. Um, and there's this sort of, I don't know, I can't attribute the quote, but the idea that we only remember the last time we remembered the thing. We don't ever have a sense of the original memory, as it were, the thing that we experienced, because every time we remember it, we slightly overwrite the version and so the next time we recall it, we're only recalling the latest time we remembered it. And so we're adapting the story of even our own experience each time we recount it. And I think that's also a lovely idea in terms of the nature of how stories change and adapt. Um, it might be just this intrinsic thing to the human brain. Um, so stories are going to feel a lot more natural in that way. Pete has been excellent, and I know you've got probably others that you got to go do. So, um, right now, as we're recording this on December first, and it's going to come out in a couple of days, I know that uh, people are finding ways to sign up to talk with Lucy. Is that still? Are, are all those slots gone at this point? Or <laughs> there, there is a waiting list for sure, but um, it's always worth. Um, checking her out on, uh, on Instagram and, and seeing her story and she might write back. Um, it's just kind of like falling down the rabbit hole at this moment, almost by design. Um, we want this to be a magical experience for people. So yeah, there'll be a lot more in the future. Um, but we're completely in the experimental phase. I think we're just really curious about what it means to just to sort of bond with a character. And so we're going to keep going. All right. Well, keeping a close eye, um, to say the least, on what you guys are up to. So, and hopefully, when this whole global pandemic thing we've been uh, playing at for a few months here uh, 
finally wraps up, we'll uh, we'll continue one of these conversations in person. Awesome. Look really looking forward to it. Once again, I want to thank Pete Billington for being our guest on the show today. You can find Wolves in the Walls on the Oculus Store, and you can learn more about Fable and their work with virtual beings at fable-studio.com. Links again, of course, in the show notes. That's the show for the day. Uh, one more thing you might want to check out. Uh, Catherine just posted up our uh, our check-in with our writers about what's been working uh, during uh, the, the pandemic age of immersive theater. Uh, I say that with like a little laugh and I'm just like, because we're, we're very, very tired of it. Um, but... <laughs> This is our lives. So uh, that check-in post, it's been a few months since we did one of those, um, and that's gone up on the site today. So uh, get some insights there into into how things are going uh, from the, the catbird seat we're sitting in. Again, you want to check out the nominations. Uh, you want to put yours in for the awards this year. We cover a lot of categories, and... Uh, and uh, frankly, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, uh, stuff in the audience awards that uh, we didn't even get a chance to see. So because there's just so much going on right now. And uh, just in case you're wondering, yes, the nominations open globally. All right. So if so long as something can be accessed uh, online or it can ship in, you know, to to the place where our, our folks are. Uh, then yeah, it's eligible. It's eligible for award, and that's that's kind of exciting. Uh, we'll get into more about like the the hows and whys of the awards when we do the award show coming up uh, on the eighteenth. Um, ah, man, there's 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 so much going on right now. Uh, we're racing towards the end of the year. Um, those those podcast episodes we were talking about by the XR Theater stuff that's actually going to happen at the beginning of next year now just because of the way the the schedules went. Uh, Fifth Wall Forum is happening today, getting ready to happen as I'm recording this. Uh, I've been doing uh, some conversations with with folks you know around the community, both creative and the fan community, and just just learning where everyone's at this year as we come to the close. And indeed, you know. Um, there's there's light at the end of the tunnel now, uh, but we are in kind of a, a dark moment when it comes to the pandemic. I mean, it's easy to turn your head, but uh, things are bad in the states right now. So, um, and we're, we're we're gonna be in pandemic theater mode for at least another six months. Um, there's there's talk that Broadway will get to come back in the fall. There's some indication that some stuff in the summer may be able to happen, but it's gonna be a slow ramp up, and that's you know, impacting the kind of plans we're making for our in-person events and just how we're approaching everything. But we're we're going to stay in this mode and we're going to stay focused on the, 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 the XR stuff and the new platforms as people find new ways to connect and be creative for at least the first, you know, the rest of the winter and into the spring, that's going to be heavily be our focus. So I'm looking forward to seeing just the kind of creative flourishing that's going on. I'm looking forward to seeing what's kind of come out of the fifth wall forum and just seeing new projects emerge, see what's going on at Sundance and at South by, uh, because there's been a lot of energy thrown into this space. 
Uh, and it's one of the things that I, I, I love about what we do is that we've always had a view that we are on a continuum here between the physical and the digital. And projects like Wolves in the Walls really prove that theory out. If you have not, like after all this, if, you, if you're still on the fence of like, oh, maybe I might check it out or not. If you have access to a quest, if you have access to a rift, uh, go get it. Go get it. See what can be done. Um, and if you are so lucky, uh, try and connect with the virtual being version of Lucy. Uh, again, links in the show notes for that. All right. I got to get out of here. Uh, I'd love to spend all day talking with you. You know that. But here we go with the part of the show. As I click over, (laughs) make sure I do the ending right. First off, music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. The executive editor of No Persinium is Catherine Yu. Our sustaining backers are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, Samuel Mystery, Sydney Guillory, Emily Gillette, Brittany, and Elaine. Thank you all. We do need your support at patreon.com slash no proscenium. The annual memberships are turned on. Keep us afloat. Help us grow and one day be able to pay our people. Uh, that's it for now. I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, thank you for wearing the mask. Thank you.